Welcome to episode 49 of Curiosityness. Oh, we're almost at 50. We're so close. Man, that's a lot of episodes. Uh, thanks for sticking around and, and listening to all these because this episode's super fun. I have on two of the world's experts on presidential pets. I have on uh, Andrew Hager and Bill Hellman, and they work at the uh, Presidential Pet Museum. And this is a pretty fun interview because it's really a cool part of history to hear about the presidential pets, especially the older ones, Uh, like because now we're used to dogs and cats in the White House. And, and, you know, it's fun to see those cute pictures and everything. But boy, oh boy, there's some crazy stories Uh, like, let's see, Andrew Jackson had a swearing parrot. Uh, Calvin Coolidge had a raccoon. There were tiger cubs that were left in the White House, uh, bear cubs, just a hippo, crazy stuff. And we get into all this stuff. Andrew and Bill, um, you can tell they really do enjoy this stuff and are passionate about it. So it's extremely fun to listen to them and and talk in depth um, to them about all this history. So uh, that's it. Hope you enjoy this episode. Their website is presidentialpetmuseum.com. Andrew has written some uh, pretty cool kids' children's books um, called POTUS Pets, which are on Amazon Books. I'll have links to all that stuff um, down below, so be sure to check it out. But without further ado, here is Andrew and Bill of the Presidential Pet Museum. Andrew and Bill, how are you guys doing? Doing great. How are you, Travis? Doing good, man. Great to see you. Yeah. Great to see you guys, too. I mean, we got to start off. Where are you guys at right now? This background behind you guys is crazy. <laughs> we are in what we call the Wolf Den. And um, we <laughs> this is like uh, our studio where we do, we're do we doing live broadcast and Facebooking and all that good stuff. And it's got, all, if you were here, I'm, I'm Bill Wolf Driver Hellman. And Technically speaking, I call myself a dog adventurer. So I run all over the East Coast of the United States with my dogs on bike-like sleds. And this studio kind of commemorates that. It's got um, all kinds of decor to do with that and to do with dogs and all that good stuff. Right. Man, so Wolf Driver, that's not a given name? That's not a <laughs> not a birth-given name, but <laughs> it's a dog-given name. <laughs> yeah, right on. No, it looks awesome. I love all this stuff. It's 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 great for anyone who is uh, just listening. I I encourage you to hop on the uh, on YouTube and check out the video because it looks sweet. You guys look great. Oh man. Okay. Well, you guys are the. Thank I mean, would it be you. fair to say I'm talking to the the two two of the best experts on presidential pets? I would say it's uh, pretty close. Um, Maybe one and a half. Andrew's the real expert. I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a lot. There are a lot of people out there who uh, aren't connected to the museum and who are sort of like uh, amateur experts. Like they, uh, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of uh, niche interest in the presidential pet uh, thing. So um, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there whose knowledge rivals mine or possibly even surpasses mine, but they just uh, weren't in the right place at the right time. I guess when. Bill took over the museum. So yeah, yeah. So let's let's start there. How did this how did this begin? Why the Presidential Pet Museum, and how? Um, the museum was started by a woman named Claire McLean, and uh, she was one of Ronald Reagan's dog groomers. Um, oh. What was it? Was it Bouviers? Uh, uh, I think they were Bouviers. Yeah, and her dog was it Lucky? Yeah, it was the Reagan's dog Lucky that she was grooming, and. Um, 
she decided to, I don't know, smuggle out some dog hair from the White House. And I mean, maybe that's totally allowed. I don't know. Um, but she got it home and either she or her mother, one of them made, uh, maybe both, made mixed media art from the dog hair. And they started, they got interested in presidential pets and Claire started this museum I believe it was around 20 or 25 years ago. Yeah, and um, you know she ran it for a number of years, and um, but but she was sort of you know getting on in age, and she wasn't able to sort of um, promote it the way she had been, and she didn't want it to die, so she was looking for someone to take it over, and that's where Bill came in. And I, I guess Bill, you should probably give him some of your history, like why you got interested in presidential pets or why you came to this project. Yes. Thank you, Andrew. Well, through all my dog adventuring, we go on a lot of trails. Again, I'm on the East Coast of the United States and a lot of history here, Civil War, et cetera. And I took a good interest to that, and especially some of the bigger parks and trails like the CNO, which stands for Chesapeake and Ohio, Canal and Towpath, is one of the largest trails around here. It goes almost 200 miles. And um, I was interested in finding out the history of it because you pass by all these remnants of, of buildings and it says Civil War, so-and-so crossed here. Really interesting stuff. So then I learned that one of the presidents designated that trail as a park, as the whole thing, because the, um, the canal went defunct soon after it was completed, somewhere in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about history and everything and how it plays a part in what people do. They get out there with their dogs and doing this and tying that together with the presidents having pets. And I'm, I'm like, why does he, why did, um, which, do you know which president designated? I can't remember if it was Roosevelt or. Yeah, I want to, I want to say it was around that time. I did some research on the CNO, but it's been over a year and I haven't followed up on that. <laughs> but I just was taking it. Why would a president, you know, go out of his way to designate a state park? Like, what's the interest? And then uh, I'm thinking about it. Maybe he takes his dog out. Maybe he does things with his dogs. I mean, they got to get away from politics. They got to get a, a stress release, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, just in that time frame, Claire came along somewhere. I had noticed that she had to do something with the museum, rehome it. And I contacted her or her and some of the people she works with, and we were able to work it out. She liked what I do, and she liked the fact that I was able to bring people on board like Andrew. And she said, I think you're the natural next home for the Presidential Pet Museum. Uh -huh. And it's history from there. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's so cool. Yeah, you guys kind of have – it's just kind of a natural progression of how that happened and you were you were right there to take it over. So I got to ask about your – you know, is that trail for um, Wolf Drive? It, what's the proper term, you know? <laughs> okay. The trail is – it's a – basically a nature trail that's uh -huh. for hiking and pedestrians and biking. It crosses some roads. It starts off in Washington, D.C. and Georgetown. Mm -hmm. So it's – a crowded area, pop, well-populated area. And if you go down there, you'll see tons of people, but it goes all the way out to Cumberland, Maryland. And through there, you're passing through a lot of remote areas that um, it's almost isolated. I mean, you can get back there and be on stretches for 15 miles plus and not see any roads or any way to access it. So you're way back there. And there's things back there besides the um, war remnants. There's like a cement factory that was um, it, it really interesting because the kilns are still there. And there were kilns before that factory even that were, I don't know if they were making ammo, what they were making, but they're like buried inside the woods there. And you just discover actually to go one step further. 
ghost hunting there because we were so inspired. And some of what transpired on the trail, uh, I guess, kind of motivated us or, or piqued my interest, at least. And I'm like, I wonder what else happens here. And there's not that much information available on the Internet about it. Of course, Andrew has done some research on that trail and um, he found some of the some of the backstory. But there's, of course, it's almost 200 miles. There's a lot of stories along there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And actually, tying it to presidential pets, I, I don't know if uh, Jackie Kennedy walked her dogs there, but I believe she used to walk along the CNO in Georgetown. Um, that was one of the things when I was researching our book about uh, their dog, Pushinka, I, I found that she would walk along the CNO canal. So there's a connection for you. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then and the Kennedys, you see bringing up Jackie Kennedy. I mean, they had horses at the White House and some pretty famous ones. Uh-huh. And that, that blew my mind. Like when I was getting involved with the Presidential Pet Museum, some of the animals that were at the White House was really incredible. I mean, it was just like, you would never expect it. Yeah, really. Well, I, I, I think the thing is, um, in the last 50 years or so, uh, basically from Lyndon Johnson onward, um, most of the animals have been dogs and cats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't even know if anybody's had any birds since then. I don't, I don't think so. Um, but if you go back farther, um, back into the, you know, 1920s, Calvin Coolidge had all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, you know, my favorite being Rebecca, the raccoon who was sent to him as a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, somebody sent him a live raccoon. Uh, you know, I guess because it would spoil. Um, but he decided I'm not going to eat this raccoon for Thanksgiving uh, because, you know, I'd rather have a turkey. Um, but he they could have put he, some feathers on it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he kept it as a pet. And uh, his wife uh, used to walk the raccoon on a leash and they took it to the White House Easter egg roll. But apparently it got a little out of hand there and tore somebody's dress and had to be taken away. Um, <laughs> You know, go figure, like the raccoon, like a bunch of kids, and not a, not a great mix. Probably yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, can you imagine now if a president, uh, you know, Donald Trump doesn't have any pets, but let's say he got a raccoon. Um, you know, like what kind of news that would make. Um, yeah. Now, was that like, because, yeah, I've you know, me growing up and seeing the presidents, it's always like their dogs or cats, just normal kind of, you know, domesticated animals that people have. But it, was that kind of a... A sign of the times? Did other people in the general population have raccoons? Do you know? I, I don't know about pet raccoons, but I do know that <laughs> just animals, I mean, they didn't have the city ordinances in the same way that we do now, where you're really restricted on what you're allowed in certain municipalities. I mean, Herbert Hoover's son had alligators. They weren't at the White House. This was before Hoover became president, but he lived in D.C. and he had alligators in his in his townhome. Um you know, and it was just that kind of thing. Like I've read stories about people in the '40s and '50s who would go door to door selling pet monkeys to people. Um, oh my gosh! No, none actually made their way to the White House, but um, you know, it was just one of those times where there was the availability of exotic animals, and people were more willing to experiment with that. Uh, I don't think there was the same awareness about animal cruelty or about um, you know what's best for your monkey. Yeah. Uh, that, that we would have now. I mean, now there would be a lot of issues. Um, you know, there are, still are people with weird pets. Like I remember a woman maybe 10 years ago got her face ripped off by a chimpanzee. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that was her pet chimp. Um, but that's much more rare now and probably in part because we have the internet and we can see stories like woman gets face ripped off by chimpanzee. <laughs> and that, that's a deterrent. Uh, true. Um, yeah. there, has been, there has been a shift over time in the... And the way people perceive the animals just in general. Like if you go back far enough, 
George Washington had dogs and horses and things like that. And we call them pets on our website. But in all honesty, they're more like working animals. Hmm. You know, he's, these, these are hunting dogs. These are hounds. Uh, these are horses that he's riding or that are pulling his carriage. It's very different from, uh, you know, Richard Nixon having, uh, you know, having a dog sitting next to him watching TV at night. It's, it's just a very different uh, view of an animal's role in a, in a human's life, really. And that's that's been something uh, that I hadn't really thought about before I became historian at the museum. But you can you can sort of see a shift over time um, in in how these animals are perceived and and what their uh, what their use is. I mean, a lot of our modern presidential pets are in some ways a public relations uh, tool. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. not that not that people don't love them. Not that you know George W. Bush didn't love Barney or that Barack Obama didn't love Bo or anything like that. I'm sure that these people love their pets, but. Those pets are useful for humanizing you and for making you seem relatable to the average person in a way Thomas Jefferson wasn't thinking about when he was buying mockingbirds, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's the thing too about why people kind of enjoy that aspect of seeing what a president, the presidential pet is. It's just a kind of a glimpse into the more of their personal life and saying, you know, they, they just live in this house, they have pets, you know? Mm-hmm. You can, yeah, you can really see that that personal side of them, which I, I think people find interesting, and and everyone loves dogs too, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, what's what are the statistics now? I think I saw somewhere like sixty percent of American homes have dogs. Oh wow, and, really? Yeah, it's it's something it's high huge. like that. It's huge. That's incredible. And of course, a multi-billion-dollar industry for supplies and food for them oh, and yeah. all that good stuff. Yeah, but you know. I, I did another interview with somebody, and uh, the lady asked me, um, you know, looking at the presidential candidates that are out there right now, uh, you know, obviously Donald Trump doesn't have any animals, and there are a couple of uh, the Democratic contenders who don't have any pets. Bernie Sanders doesn't have one. I don't think Kamala Harris has a pet. Um, but this lady said to me, well, do you think that having a pet or the type of pet that someone has would change a vote? And, you know, Maybe not in a Republican versus Democrat competition, but if you were looking at it from a primary standpoint, if you're somebody who's a Democratic voter and you're looking at four or five candidates that have very similar views and uh, you know their policies are reasonably comparable and like their personality, the pet might come in handy or it might be it might be an edge. Like maybe you say, well, Pete Buttigieg has uh, some rescue pugs, and I like that he rescued his dogs. Or, you know, Elizabeth Warren has a golden retriever. I have a golden retriever. You know, I mean, it could be just something that pushes somebody a little bit over the top. I mean, I don't know. You never know what's going to make the average person uh, push a button in a voting booth. So, yeah, that's a very good it's point. Consideration. I think animal lovers like other animal lovers or other people with dogs that are similar to them. And when you add the whole the um, whole element of rescuing and everything else. That's why I think he has a more appeal along to people like that. Mm-hmm. So I think like you're saying, Democrat, Republican, it might not have sway of voter too much. Yeah. But when you start primaries, it might have some impact. You do see some confirmation bias with, with stuff too. I mean, we try not to get very political at the Presidential Pet Museum because our thought is that pets are something that unite us as a people. But when you tell people that Donald Trump doesn't have any pets, people who don't like Donald Trump, I mean, to them, that's like this, of course he doesn't have pets. He's a terrible person. Those animals would suffer. You know, like there's this mm-hmm. very 
very visceral, very visceral reaction that people have to that. Um, you know, it, like I said, it's confirmation bias, you know, like, ah, of course, the things I've always believed are true because this. Um, and I'm sure it goes the other way, um, yeah, the other yeah. way, too. Um, when we when he first got elected, actually, we had people contacting us. In fact, I took a couple of the calls. They wanted to give a dog to him, a Labradoodle. I remember in particular, and they wanted to know if I we had any sources that could help us get into the White House and rehome, or it was a puppy actually, a Labradoodle to Donald oh Trump. Wow! And the <laughs> answer is no. We have no sources. We are we are not juiced in. Um, but on that being said, the White House on at least one occasion before we took the museum over had given Claire, the founder of the museum, again the cowbell. I believe, from the last cow that roamed the lawns, grazed on the lawns of the White House, which was Pauline. Pauline Wayne was Pauline William Howard Taft Scott, but that, I didn't know that came from that the came, White House. That came from the White House. Okay, we'll that's see the there. Story, that's the story Claire told me, that the White House contacted them, and for some reason they needed to get rid of the cowbell or give it away. It was taking yeah. up six inches of space on a show. <laughs> and they said right. they're the natural place <laughs> we want it to be. So. Yeah, that's perfect. That, that's actually one of my favorite artifacts. It's great because you can take that out to different like shows and conventions, and people can touch it and hold it, and it's this 110-year-old cowbell. Um, but it's a part of history that they can't really damage. You know, yeah. it's not like um, they could drop it. I mean, the cow did what it did with it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's another example of how uh, animals have changed over time. I mean, now you would never think about having a cow in downtown D.C., but at that time they didn't have milk delivery and you didn't have grocery stores. So if you wanted milk uh, with your breakfast or any kind of dinner, you had to have a cow on the property. And so cows were just roaming around there for all those years. And maybe it was doing the job of the lawnmower too. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> and that, that gets us into uh, Woodrow Wilson and his sheep, right? Um, you know, in World War One, one of his, his favorite. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love like, old Ike was Woodrow Wilson's ram. Uh, during World War One, Woodrow Wilson sent his gardeners off to the mow the lawn at the White House, and uh, then we'll auction off their wool and donate that to the Red Cross. And so he had all these all these uh, sheep, and then there was one ram there, and it, that was old Ike, and he was cantankerous. And people at the time, like reporters or whoever was at the White House, would just throw their cigar butts on the ground, and the, the ram got addicted to chewing tobacco. Like, it would, it started <laughs> chewing the cigars, and, um, you know, so like, bloody. yeah, so even to the end of its life, like, uh, the guy it was rehomed to after Woodrow Wilson left office— um, you know, that guy would feed Ike cigars uh, like a couple times a day. And if you were walking around with tobacco and you didn't share, the ram would nudge you and he would get more and more aggressive if you did not share with him. So, um, yeah, I wrote a children's book about that, which is a weird topic for a children's book. You know, like you try to go into an elementary school and you're reading this book about a, you know, a ram who chews tobacco. <laughs> um, might have sold better in, uh, you know, like 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, maybe we could take it somewhere like North Carolina, a place where the tobacco industry is strong. Um, but, uh, yeah. Man, yeah, that's a really fun story. I love stuff like that where, you know, they just had to have animals around for, for practical purposes. And, um, you know, we don't really think about that anymore where we have our, our milk delivered to us and stuff. We don't need cows on our front lawn. But, uh, yeah, it's a very, very good point. Yeah, we're so we're so disconnected from our, our food chain at this point, you know, or most of us. You know, unless you live on a farm or you do a lot of hunting or, 
you know, you have your own garden. The rest of us, it's like everything comes prepackaged, wrapped in plastic. And it's, it, you know, we just, it's a very different mindset. And it's, it's not anything like it was even like 60 years ago. So mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, a lot of stories like this, it's a way of kind of reconnecting with not just the trivia and the facts and the dates, like, okay, World War I happened here to here, but how were people actually living at that time? And I, I think that's the part that a lot of times when you just read a history textbook or something, you don't you don't get that vibe. Or you watch a movie and they kind of cover the main events, like here's the battle and here's how they won. But you don't get the vibe of like what it was like to just be a normal person at, in those days. And I think the museum allows allows us to get through some of that. Mm-hmm. I, I like the the areas when I talk about the trails. When I get somewhere that's steeped in history, like the CNO. Sometimes it's cool to just stop for a couple minutes, close my eyes, and the places, again, that are remote, you don't hear any cars or planes or anything, and you're just like, what was it like to be here 150 years ago? I mean, you just imagine what people were going through then, and a lot of that canal was hand-dug, if not all of it, so you're like, wow, "Wow, this place must have been unbelievable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is truly extraordinary to go visit be in an actual historical place where something was happening, you know, even hundreds or thousands of years ago, and you could see the remains. And yeah, to just take a take a minute and try to picture it and feel what was going on. It is really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's a reminder of just how fortunate we are to have been born when we were born. <laughs> you know, you look and see like, Oh man, life must have sucked back then. <laughs> yeah. You know, digging a canal by hand, for example, would really suck. I, I can't even imagine. If you see this place, I mean, it's just like, how in the world could they dig it by hand? I mean, it's hard enough with equipment, with bulldozers and backhoes, but I mean, well, wow. Well, didn't you say there's a tunnel on the CNO Canal where they thought it would take them like a year to dig through this mountain? And it took them 10 years yeah. because it was before dynamite and before the, the, the Paul know. it's called the coincidentally, I thought it was some kind of joke on me uh-huh. because a friend of mine set out, Hey, we're going to go explore the Paul Paul tunnel with the dogs today. And I'm like, you know, knock it off Paul Paul tunnel dogs. And it actually is in a place or it goes near a place called Paul Paul, West Virginia. It's a tunnel or a mountain, I should say, that when they were building the canal, it was one of the hardest parts they had to make it around. Mm-hmm. And there were different stories. They could go around the mountain, they could run the canal, and they could do this, that, and the other. But they had to deal with this mountain in some way. So somebody came up with a plan to, I guess, take – I don't know if they had dynamite back then. I don't then. think they did. No, some, that was later. Somehow they had to get through this tunnel, and they said it's going to take a year. Mm-hmm. That's the plan they came up with. Well, it took 14 years, actually, okay. from my understanding. And in that 14 years, the canal was still getting built, but the railroad moved in there, and the railroad pretty much put them out of business. So oh, they man. made it through the tunnel, and I've been through the tunnel. It's like five-eighths of a mile, and it's really eerie in there because the canal – I've never seen anything like it. In fact, the canal actually – to this day, now it's just a dilapidated waterway that when it rains, it fills up and it passes through there. And there's like a, almost a skeleton type, I guess, barrier or fence that keeps you from falling in. The dogs, my dogs were so freaked out. The dogs that were on that side, because we're surrounded on one side's a wall, on the other side's a fence, the sides that the uh, fence that this dilapidated, well, the fence is not in bad shape. It's just real open the way it's built. The dogs were like, oh, they, they could sense that they could fall out, fall over there. Now, there's oh. probably no way they fall. They're tethered to the bike. But, I mean, you know, if you slip a little bit, things can happen. And I had to move them 
So I had four dogs on one side of the bike. It was pretty interesting um, dynamic. But what was even more fun was when we went through at night, we decided we're going to ghost hunt this tunnel because there's all kinds of stories back there. They claim um, they have something that says only in your state. They claim it's one of the most haunted tunnels in Maryland or in the East Coast, whatever. Mm-hmm. We didn't get a lot of um, paranormal activity that we detected, but we it was eerie in there. That's for oh, sure. Yeah. And I have, to, I have to jump in here with the talk of ghost hunting and say that I'm very skeptical about <laughs> I don't go on most of these ghost hunts, although I'm, I'm willing to uh, to travel. But along, he has gone with us. I, I did go once. Yes. And it was an interesting, almost like an anthropological thing. Like I'm watching <laughs> Like, oh, so this is what a ghost hunt is, because I've never watched Ghost Adventurers or whatever those shows are. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 just when you the more you get to know Bill, the more there are these layers of the onion that peel back. And there's just like one more layer of weirdness there that you're like, oh, there's that, too. You know, and it's it's all very like charming and lovable weirdness, Bill. I don't. I don't thank you. Thank you. You know, man. you're that's not creepy. Now. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say on, on my creepy. Yeah. The next yeah. part of the onion you peel back, you might sound creepy. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Well, I mean, yeah, just jumping back to that, you know, well, they didn't have dynamite, but it's like, I went to a, uh, kind of a history of, of medicine, a pharmaceutical museum kind of thing, pharmacy museum. And, uh, you know, we were getting a tour and he's the, the tour guide said that, you know, back in, you know, the 1800s, early 1900s, they didn't have anything to numb the pain or anything like that. And, mm. you know, people would get amputated and just bite on a piece of wood and, and you know, oh my drink some alcohol and, and go for it, you know, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, like, like, just clear it. Like, it sounds horrible. But he's like, you got to realize that's just what it was back then. People didn't think that there was even a way to take away the pain. You know, like that's just what life was and that's just what you had to deal with when you had to get your arm amputated. I, I read a really interesting book on James Garfield uh, called The Destiny of the Republic, and it was about his assassination. And really, a lot of it came down to the fact that Americans didn't understand germ theory at the time. There was this uh, germ theory had started to be developed in Europe, and American doctors were like, oh, that's bullshit. Like, there's no such thing as a germ, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, he had this bullet in him and he would have lived except that every day they would like get a, a metal stick out and poke around in there to try and dig wow. this bullet out. And, it, you know, like they didn't wash or sanitize this metal <laughs> stick. Right. You know, and the poor guy, like it, it's saying like he was so brave, like he never screamed or anything. But they're not anesthetizing him. They're not putting anything on that. They're just <laughs> – like taking his bullet hole and shoving a metal stick in there and then Ugh. moving it around looking for a bullet. And, you know, eventually he just got infected and, and died from that. And, you know, it was probably a relief, honestly, <laughs> after like <laughs> he lived for, I think, um, I think he was shot in like June and he died in September or October. I mean, he lived for several months getting poked and prodded every day with this bullet in him and like infection growing. So Oh, it was a uh, yeah, and it's a shame too because you know when you actually look at his policies, he was very forward thinking for his time. Like he was really like on the cutting edge of civil rights, very you know very big on all these things that today we would say, oh yeah, that's the right thing, uh, you know, especially for a guy in 1880. But it just um, you know somebody shot him uh, because he didn't become ambassador to France, you know. So it's, it's the way history turns. Wow, yeah. crazy cool. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's let's jump ahead a little bit. How uh, you know you kind of mentioned like um, you know uh, Trump not having a, a pet right now. How important is it for you know 
presidents or presidential candidates when they're considering what pets to get, uh, like the type of breed and like the image that the, the animal brings? Is that something that you think is given a lot of thought? Um, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know from an image standpoint. I mean, Elizabeth Warren's golden retriever is named Bailey after George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. And to me, that's the most on-brand Elizabeth Warren thing you could do. You know, like, <laughs> he's a banker, but he's in favor of this little guy. And, you know, like, that's Elizabeth Warren, you know. So that, and I'm not saying that that's entirely calculated. It just seems very on-brand. You know, I know with the Obamas, when they were getting a pet, um, I believe it was uh, Barack Obama who had allergies, or was it one of the girls? Somebody in the family Somebody had, had allergies, allergies yeah. to dog dander, and so they needed a breed that that wouldn't it cause those allergies to flare up. And that's how they came to the Portuguese water dog. Ted Kennedy had had some, and yeah, Bo was, was a, a gift, gift from Ted Kennedy huh. because he said, "Okay, these are hypoallergenic dogs," and um, you know, they're great dogs. Kennedy would go running with his every day. Um, and so that's where that came from. So, you know, sometimes there are other considerations in play. And like Bill was saying, a lot of the, a lot of the pets turn out to be gifts in some way or another. I know Nixon, a couple of the dogs had been given to him by admirers. Um, I think Ronald Reagan had been given some dogs as well, and they were sent out to his ranch in California um, you know, people have tried to give and, Trump dogs, but yeah, yeah, like was, and Pushinka, Pushinka, yeah, from that's um, an interesting story. Yeah, Pushinka was a gift to uh, Jack Kennedy for Keita Khrushchev, and oh. uh, that sounds really crazy. But the way that worked out, <clears throat> excuse me, I, <clears throat> I guess I should take a sip of water here. Hold on a second. I uh, <laughs> so in. June of 1961, Kennedy and Khrushchev were having a summit in Vienna. And they, you know, when you have these summits, it takes multiple days and you always have these big formal state dinners. And Jackie Kennedy was seated next to Nikita Khrushchev at the state dinner. John F. Kennedy was seated somewhere else. Um, you know, they probably, the two guys didn't want to talk at that point, probably. <laughs> so they're, they're just chatting, making small talk. And Nikita Khrushchev starts talking about the space dogs, Belka and Strelka. They, had, they were the first dogs sent into orbit. They had orbited the Earth and been returned safely. Um, prior to that, the Soviets sent a dog up into space, but they couldn't get him back. So the dog just died up there. But Belka and Strelka came back to Earth, and then Strelka had puppies. And he mentioned that, and Jackie Kennedy said, oh, you'll have to send me one of the puppies. And, uh, you know, she forgot all about it because it was just small talk. Right. And then three or four weeks later, this dog shows up at the White House with a little Russian passport. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a gift from Khrushchev to Jackie Kennedy. And the FBI had to come in. The Secret Service <laughs> had to check it out. You know, like no bugs, you know, like there are no electronic listening devices planted in this dog's rectum or anything like that. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, you know, the, the Kennedys got to keep the dog, and uh, Pushinka ended up having uh, puppies with one of Kennedy's other dogs, a dog named Charlie. And, um, you know, the, so it was, it's like a little Cold War love story. And uh, <laughs> I did write a children's book about that one, too. Uh, and, you know, my thought and some of the reading that I've done on this, and again, it's a very subtle thing. It's not the kind of thing that is really overt. But one of the theories about why the Americans and the Soviets were able to back down during the Cuban Missile Crisis is because they had this... <laughs> backdoor channel for exchanging gifts, and they had exchanged gifts with each other. Uh, Kennedy had sent Khrushchev in response uh, to Pushinka. He had sent him like a little like ship in a bottle or something. And, you know, when you're able to see the humanity of your adversary, 
I think that makes it a lot harder to push a red button that, that nukes that person's country. Um, you know, and it allowed them to work together because then because they had this back channel, they also had a way of communicating that could go beyond just what the media or, uh, you know, whatever, you know, the normal modes of communicating. And that was that was really helpful. They were able to kind of circumvent their military establishments, all of whom were advocating for some sort of confrontation in Cuba. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think of Pushinka, you know, in some ways, is like a dog who saved the world. I mean, that's the closest we've ever come to nuclear war. Uh-huh. And, you know, in a very small way, maybe in the same way that like having a rescue dog might push somebody over the edge into making a decision in the voting booth, just like, you know, the last straw on a big pile of decision-making ideas, I, I think Pushinka had some impact there. Um you know, they can become ambassadors. I mean, these dogs, pets are so important for all, for every, for a lot of people who like them. And when you, they get into a situation like that, look how that two leaders, two world leaders that were headed for confrontation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it would be nice if maybe like uh, Kim Jong-un would send Donald Trump a dog or something, but <laughs> Trump has, has said he's not a dog person. So maybe that would actually be the wrong thing to do. <laughs> Oh man, uh, a rocket! Oh, oh. <laughs> no, I too, didn't mean it like far, that. Too far, too um, far. Like all the little rocket man. Yeah, yeah. Maybe send, maybe send Elton John to do a concert there. There you go. You know, that that'll have less. Uh, it'll seem less aggressive. Um, sending him a rocket's kind of like if you found a bullet in your mailbox. Like, oh crap! Somebody's somebody's coming for Somebody me. Somebody wants me. Yeah. Oh man. Um, we yeah, haven't had that at the museum. <laughs> but we do get we do get people commenting sometimes, like they're so vehemently against, for instance, Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. We've gotten probably hate mail on both. I recall the Bill Clinton one. Yeah, it's not really hate mail towards us so much as it's yeah. just like they're really angry about I mean I think on Facebook I had shared a picture of Bill Clinton walking a dog. And, you know, some lady like private messaged us and was like, This is a despicable human being. How dare you share this picture? And I'm like, uh, all right, look, I walk in his dog. And this yeah. was after he was president. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I get it. I mean, I think there are things you could point at and uh, you know, I'll I'll throw my political stuff out here a little bit. Like I'm liberal, I think Bill's more conservative, like our museum kind of like spans all of that stuff. Um I, but I understand, like, there are things you can look at Bill Clinton and you can say, like, as policy aside, this person has done some questionable things. And I, I understand being upset by that. But, you know, at the same time, it's just a guy and his dog. He's you know, dog his like, dog. Mm-hmm. It, it really shows the human side of people having a dog. And I think that's what helps politicians, especially presidents. But, I mean, he was just walking his dog after his presidency in New York, I guess, yeah, where his yeah. home is. And and the woman went off. I mean, uh, she had a couple of choice emails to send to us. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, and it's the same. It, it's the same thing with with Trump. If Trump were to get a, a pet, you know, like um, let's say he got a cat or something. It's, you know, I, I don't know why. I don't think he's going to. But let's say he did, and we posted a picture of that, which of course we would, because that's that's us. You know, yeah. we're the presidential pet museum. Mm-hmm. We, we get would pro- get we'd get angry. You know, comments like uh, you know, and it's just people get bent out of shape for everything. But I did see Donald Trump. I don't know if you saw anyone else saw this on an interview or a question someone threw at him, are you getting a dog? And he said, no. He said, can you imagine me walking a dog? That's all he said. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, gosh. Well, but <laughs> Well, and even as somebody who disagrees with Trump politically, I do think this is one area where I give him some credit for knowing 
knowing his limitations, limitations. in that regard. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not a dog person. I'm not going to do this just to, you know, look like I am something I'm not. So why why do the, it? The, the thought was that for his son. You know, oh, yeah, for you know, Baron. I mean, and, of mm. course, it does personalize you some, humanize you, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, if you're not a dog person, you get one for your kid, uh, you know, you're probably – you would end, he would end up with bad PR because he'd end up, That's like, right. with pictures where he looks angry at the dog for doing something, and then <laughs> that would be the Then thing. he'd have PETA after him. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just – at a certain point, when you're the president, 50% of the people are going to be pissed at you all the time. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know, so you can do something that seems really innocuous. Like when Michelle Obama said, like, I think kids should eat more vegetables. And <laughs> conservative people were like, don't tell my kid he can't have a cookie. Like, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you were just probably telling your kid to eat vegetables before they had a cookie. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things. Um, sometimes you can't win. Yeah. At Warriors, everybody's got an opinion and thinks they're an expert on something. And Yeah. Well, and you guys are in an interesting spot because you're just trying to report on, share something fun and lighthearted, you know, presidential pets. But it's, you know, the president's such a dividing topic sometimes, you know, so you guys kind of get caught in the middle of that. I can I can understand. Yeah, that's especially in today's day and age. It, um, years ago, of course, there wasn't all this, I, I guess, divisiveness, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was probably a little easier, especially when Claire was doing this. But um, he was told you the story I remember about Lucky where she took the dog hair and they made paintings. And uh, all, I think they auctioned off some of the stuff. I, I remember her telling us that, when uh, Reagan got word of it or somebody in his administration, they actually did charity events with some okay. of the dog hair that they were auctioning off. I don't know if they were making them into any kind of art or just auctioning the dog, dog hair off, but there was some stories about that. So, um, I mean, yeah, there, there was a time when things were less less divisive. And I, um, to reference another history book that I read recently, um, there's a book called These Truths by a woman named Bill Lepore who writes for The New Yorker. And she talks about how when you had well, before cable television, when you just had three networks, people would watch the evening news because it was the only thing you could watch at 630. Yeah. And so everybody was more informed and they were all sort of informed in the same way. And once cable came in, I mean, then people like some people broke off to like Fox News and MSNBC to more politicize things. And other people just started tuning to TBS to watch reruns of Roseanne. <laughs> yeah. And so you sort of lost that you lost that moderate voter. And you, you, in a way, that takes away some of that cohesiveness because the moderate voter now is is much less informed than they used to be until right before the election. And then hmm. what do they get informed by? They're getting informed by, uh, you know, attack ads and, uh, you know, all of these different things that are just kind of thrown out there. They, they don't have the hurry, base. To get your vote. Yeah, they don't have the base knowledge to build upon in the way that yeah. people in the, the 60s or early 70s would have had. Yeah. And not that there were divisive things then. I mean, obviously, Richard Nixon was very divisive. Uh, you know, the war in Vietnam was very divisive. But there was a time uh, when Lyndon Johnson got reelected. Um, he won by such a landslide that people thought, like, the country was just going to be democratic for, like, the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in 1968, Richard Nixon wins. I mean, it was just something happened there. The war and between the war and the civil rights movement and all these things that kind of shook loose in society, um, you know, things cracked open. And, um, you know, now here we are. And I'm not saying we should go back to before 1965. I, I don't want to do that. Um, but it would be nice if, uh, you know, we were less divided politically, if we saw a way to work across the aisle with each other. Um, and I think cable news and Twitter and Facebook kind of hurt that. I, I think it 
it it makes us it makes it so easy for us all to just hear like one side of the story because we select what our news input is and then to make that decision and to vilify someone else for disagreeing with us even a little bit mm-hmm. you know even if they're on our same side generally speaking like well on this issue you weren't liberal or conservative enough so you should be primaried and we should just you know there's this push for purity now that i don't think is constructive in a democracy um, yeah, well, yeah. that's something that, you know, Twitter and Facebook are having to deal with where, you know, they're, I don't know how, like where they are on it now, but, um, their algorithms are sort of set up to, you know, feed you more information of the stuff that you're already looking at. So your, your biases just get fed and fed. So you just see more of the same stuff where you're not seeing, yep. you know, both sides anymore. And it builds your paranoia, <laughs> you know, totally. and, uh, you know, all of these things, like it, it just makes you so that you really, I, I used to watch cable news and I realized after a while, like, this just makes me angry. Yeah. You know, like, what am I, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I making myself angry over something that won't even be in my mind next week? Like there's an issue of the day. It's the thing everybody's ticked off about right now. And next week it, it will all have totally new, forgotten it. New flavor, new, something new next week. Yeah. It, it's just an outrage factory. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, this is getting far more political than the pet museum yeah. usually does. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, we, we really make it a point to, not uh, and again, it's animals are a great way to bridge gaps, and us being on sometimes different ends of the spectrum on our political views helps us, and it can um, it shows how you know we get along. We don't have to argue about politics all day. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, too many people are, and like you said, you get the social media craze where I think they feed into it too. So yeah, well, I mean that's yeah. the, that's what's great about your site and what you guys do too is you have such a log you have every single president and you have their list of pets you know yeah and you could go back and see you know george washington's pets that he had or you know maybe more work animals or whatever but yeah um that's the fun part is it humanizes everybody all the presidents of history you know even presidents that i hate like i think andrew johnson if he's not the worst president he's probably like the second worst like it's it's (laughs) it's a Real race to the bottom between him and James Buchanan. Um, but I love the story of Andrew Johnson and his mice. Like while he was being impeached, there were these mice coming into his bedroom in the White House. His daughter wanted to have them exterminated. And he said no. And he would feed them flour. He would like put flour out for the mice. And I just picture this like racist old drunk that everybody in D.C. hated who's about to lose his job. And his only friends are these tiny little mice. And, it, you know, like <laughs> it – it doesn't make me really like him more, but it, it you know, like it, it kind of like yeah, adds a little shade of complexity to my <laughs> feelings about Andrew Johnson, you know, like uh, it, it, you know, and there was some debate as to whether those should actually count as pets. I count them as pets. If you're feeding them and you, you know, like that's, you know, you don't just feed random animals. That's your pet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we have, we have a picture, a uh, press photo. We got a lot of press photos for the museum that we hope to share in uh, when we, get a more permanent home. But in this photo, it's Richard Nixon the night before he was going to resign the presidency, and he's comforted with his dog on the lounge chair wherever he's sitting. And you can see all on his face the stress and everything going on, but you can see him taking comfort at the same time with his dog. So it's kind of kind of interesting. So that's yeah. maybe the same dynamic was going on with the mice. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's very poignant. Like the Nixon – Photograph is very right, poignant you know, to sure. me. I mean, and again, I, there's somebody that I think he should have resigned based on the things that he was doing. But, you know, you can't help but feel for the guy and, and to think for a moment about how hard it would be to make that decision. You fought your whole life to become president. Everything you've done has been 
I'm going to get to this place and I'm going to like run this country. And then it all crumbles, you know, and you've got to leave and you're the first president ever to have to resign um, because you're going to be impeached. Like your party has come to you and said, we cannot support you. And, and the strain and, you know, just realizing that you are now going to be infamous in that way and, and kind of dealing with all of those emotions and to put that together with a dog, um, you know, and to, and to have the dog be a comfort to you. I mean, I, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, it's pretty deep. Yeah, it is pretty. Oh, go ahead. One of the presidents, I forget who, said, "If you um, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog." Who is that? that that's attributed to Harry Truman, <laughs> which is interesting because Harry Truman was given a dog, and he was like, "I don't want this dog," and he gave it away. And so then people were mad. They were yeah. like, "He was getting hate mail. Like, how dare you give away the dog's name was Feller? Like Feller, on our, right, on our yeah. site, it's like Feller, the unwanted dog." And so then he got another dog that he like gave to his daughter or something, you know, like, all right, Margaret can have a dog, you know, like, uh, but yeah, Truman, you know, for being the person who says that, I mean, I guess he didn't want any friends in Washington, um, and, you know, and by the end of his term, he was pretty unpopular. <clears throat> Excuse me. We look at him today and we say, well, Harry Truman, he did a lot of good things. It was really important that he did this and this. And this. I mean, he desegregated the army. Um, you know, there were a lot of things that Truman did that I, would push him up the rankings for me. But when he left office, he was he was seen as, you know, very unpopular, like a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sort of the patron saint for that now. Like anybody who's losing a presidential campaign <laughs> thinks they're going to be Harry Truman. And anybody who is, you know, really hated when they leave off, leave office, they think they're going to be Harry Truman in 50 years. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's he's a good example. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting you bring up. Um, we talked about it before, but how so many of these animals these pets are given as gifts and like when you're when i was going through your site it's it's amazing i had no idea that you know political leaders were giving each other animals so often Mm -hmm. and it's such a strange gift to receive i feel like from someone you know like (laughs) another political leader or anybody it's like well you don't want to be rude and and not accept the an animal or, or give it away but it's it's tough to bring in a new animal you know especially the white house that's a commitment, man. I mean, yeah. like it's you know, yeah, big decision, and they're giving them away like like nothing. Oh yeah, and now we advise people like don't give people like animals for gifts because we're worried they're it's a commitment, a lot. Yeah, a like, dog lifelong commitment or an animal lifelong. Commitment. Yeah, like uh, like even the the singer Sia has a song called "Puppies Are Forever" and it's a, right. on her Christmas album. It's about like don't give your kid puppies because puppies are forever. Um, but yeah, people used to just give um, give animals and. Um, if you've seen The King and I, I mean, there's the, the famous part where the, the King of Siam wants to send uh, elephants to Abraham Lincoln. Um, you know, like, oh, they can help you in your war against the South. I mean, can you picture like William Sherman riding the back of an elephant, you know, as he's <laughs> stomping through Atlanta? Um, it's kind of awesome, actually. But uh, <laughs> like, I don't think I, Lincoln's response was, I, I don't believe the elephants are really suited for our terrain and our, uh, our climate. Yeah, you know, well said. very different from Siam or, or modern day Thailand. Um, so he turned that down. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, people were Harvey Firestone, I think, gave uh, gave a hippo to uh, to Calvin Coolidge. Hmm. Um, you know, like, why would you give someone a hippo? Yeah, like, like they had so many pets, the Coolidge. Yeah. So, oh, my God. I mean, that, 
Like the hippo is the most yeah. dangerous animal in Africa. You're going to give it to somebody, like as a president. Better trying to give him a son. Yeah, like, yeah. like sending. Him yeah, and I don't like your economic policies. You know, like you have this hippo. Um, <laughs> the hippo just did not bring the hippo to the White House. They immediately said, like, we'll send that to the National Zoo. Thank you, and it became very popular there. But uh, it was Billy Billy Coolidge. Really? Um, <clears throat> that was the hippo. Yeah, Billy that was the hippo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we have a representation of him in the museum, stuffed uh, animal. Yeah, we do. We just have a stuffed hippo. We don't actually have a hippo. Uh, you know, that, that would be, um, you know, maybe in the future. Hard really, to can, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so that brings up a point we'll that I'm curious about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's now I know what to get you for Christmas. There you go. Um, a hippo. That's funny. So I'm curious about: um, Are you guys? Do you guys know who is like when a when a dog comes into the White House, or or you know any animal really? You know, like Trump said, he's not a dog guy. He's not going to be seen walking to dogs really or anything like that. Like who is is caring for these animals? And you know, we had the the previous. Uh, owner of the of the presidential pet museum was the groomer right but like right. is there photos of, of presidents picking up dog poop off the front lawn <laughs> is there, i think there's one of obama or clinton doing that i'm almost sure P- possibly we have yeah. a picture I, I haven't seen that but then i haven't seen all the press photos uh, you have i'm legally blind by the way my guide dog's sitting down here so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i don't always see all the press photos that bill has like i, I try to look at them but eh, um details aren't my thing in that regard. Um, but I, I do know that um, from my research in Pushinka that for many years, from the Eisenhower years up through, uh, I believe it was Nixon, the early days of the Nixon administration, there was a, a guy named Travis Bryant who was an electrician in the White House, and he ended up getting tasked with uh, taking care of the animals around the White House. So he would take care of the Kennedy dogs. Uh, he, he took care of uh, Johnson's dogs. He, he like did stuff for Nixon as well. Um, he wrote a book called Dog Days in the White House, uh, which is significant in covering a lot of those animal stories, but also it was one of the first books to really put out juicy, gossipy details about Kennedy's sex life. So, uh, you know, it came out in the 70s and it was like this this big deal. Um, you know, I think now it's remembered less for the pet stuff and more for the Kennedy gossip. But, uh, you know, that, that was a helpful resource when I was going through it. And I would imagine that, generally speaking, there's, there's some White House staffer who's tasked with regular maintenance. I mean, not that, uh, you know, I, I don't know for certain, but let's say the Obamas. I can see Michelle Obama assigning the kids like, OK, you're going to feed Bo and Sonny. You know, I can see that being a chore that Malia and Sasha would have had to do. Um, I, I don't know that for certain, but it seems like the kind of thing that if you're raising kids in the White House and you have animals, you would give them some responsibility. Mm-hmm. But if you're just, you know, like the Eisenhowers were both like older when they were in the White House. They weren't – I don't see Ike getting down with a Maintain, yeah. dog kibble and feeding his dogs. And, you know, he had been a general. He was used to people doing things for him. I think that would have just been a natural thing to have – this guy, Travis Bryant, come and, and do your, uh, you know, your regular dog maintenance. Well, Clara told us that when she would go to groom the dogs, it was in like a shed that you wouldn't imagine would be on the White House grounds. It was just like kind of the way I was envisioning it was this dark and dingy shed that you'd find somewhere on an abandoned property. Like I might see on the trail going down. So something out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah. They're just like just there in the White House, you know. And yeah, maybe they were trying to keep her away from the main area or of course they didn't want the dog hair and I'm sure all the all the um you, you don't want the dog hair and everything all room. over. Yeah. But uh yeah she said it was just they they put put her out there to do them. 
I mean, that, you know, in a way that makes sense. You, you want an area, uh, for somebody who's coming in an outside specialist, you want an area where they're not going to have to go through all of the levels of security. I mean, obviously, there's going to be security if you're getting onto the grounds at all. But you don't want them to have to go through the same kind of stuff as somebody who's going into the, the family quarters of the White House. Yep, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if she had told us who gave her the dog. I'm sure it wasn't Ronald or Nancy Reagan that handed her the dog to groom. It was one of the handlers, like yeah. we were talking about. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure someone there. Yeah, yeah, at the very least, you have an intern, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Send an intern out with the dog, go get this groom, you know. <laughs> Fun. Yeah, man. I love these stories. This is cool. Um, so Good. Where... Glad you're enjoying <laughs> Oh, yeah. This is great, man. So where's the um, – so what? what's up with the uh, your museum today? Is it – I think I read it was under renovation. I don't know if I would say renovation. Well, like... you might have read an earlier piece because Claire had it listed for a while as being under renovation. Originally, it started off in her house. Oh. And um, now it lives in – a warehouse pretty much we're in baltimore mm-hmm. and we actually set up kind of a nice display it's the size of a small room and we have some stuff displayed there it's way too small for all the artifacts and photos and everything we have we're hoping to rehome it somewhere in the washington corridor area washington dc corridor mm-hmm. but we haven't been able to do it yet yeah so when people ask me you know can i tour the museum i i basically say we're still looking for a permanent home soon we've, we've had some debates about like making part of the museum mobile versus uh, you know other ways of doing it and it's just really trying to find the best way to get this information out there and to do it in a way that's manageable without uh, you know bill having to hire 50 people or um mm-hmm. you know um he's, or- he's done he's did a, we just recently did a show uh, APAC, I forget what it was it, called. Again. It was APIC. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that stands for. It was a political memorabilia convention um, that I, I went to. And, you know, we, we took some of the artifacts. We took Pauline Wayne's cowbell mm-hmm. and uh, the stuffed hippo. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was fun. Like, people would stop by and I would talk, I would tell them stories about the pets. And, um, you know, I was with another another guy who works for the museum on occasion. And he went around, he was looking at all the buttons and he ended up finding these these postcards of William Howard Taft and his mascot, Billy Possum. And I had never heard this story, um, but Billy Possum apparently was supposed to replace the teddy bear because the teddy bear was named after Theodore Roosevelt. I believe the story was something like Roosevelt was going to shoot this bear, and then he, he for some reason, he decided not to, and he, I don't know, the bear was just so majestic, he couldn't shoot it, and he, you know, he didn't, and then they, they named teddy bears after him, and it was this noble thing. And then William Howard Taft one night ate a 16-pound possum and said it was good. So, the, so then people were like – his supporters were like, we're going to replace the teddy bear with the Billy yeah. Possum. And, um, you know, it never caught on because, like, one, the story isn't as good. Like, the, yeah, like not shooting this noble majestic beast is kind of, like, impressive. And, and you know, like there's something really dynamic about that. And then when you talk about, um, oh, I ate a giant possum. And, you know, <laughs> that's, that's just not as heartwarming. And then also, you know, teddy bears are cute. And like, what's your stuffed possum look like? I, you know, um, apparently there were te- there were postcards that would show like Billy Possum eating a teddy bear. And then the guy at the next table at this conference said, oh, I have a postcard at home 
that's a teddy bear eating a possum. I guess like it must have been for when uh, Roosevelt ran again in 20 or not 2012, 1912 uh, for the Bull Moose uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his supporters were trying to like reclaim the teddy bears, uh, you know, supremacy or something. Um, it didn't help Taft that his economy tanked and then, uh, you know, Billy Possum sales really fell off. <laughs> There were even like songs and stuff, you know, like Billy Possum songs. And I had no, I had no idea of this till we found those postcards. Yeah, we didn't know what this is. I mean, because that's that's not really a pet, but it's sort of it's sort of pet adjacent, you know. Like you're you're talking about like a president and his animals and how people use animals to promote uh, what they're doing. And um, yeah, it's just it's just really fascinating. I mean, like the only other. You've got the teddy bear, Billy Possum, and then the only other time I can think of an animal being directly associated with a specific presidential candidate and as a symbol like that would be Andrew Jackson and the jackass, which is where the we get the modern donkey for the Democratic Party. Hmm. Um, oh, okay. Because you know, his supporters were jackasses, and then they just, like, owned it. Yeah, and they were you like, said that, not me. No. Yeah, well, no, well, I mean— <laughs> Honestly, I don't, I don't really care much for Jackson, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's what the, that's what the opposition like Henry Clay's people would have been saying or John Quincy Adams people would have been saying. And so they just owned it and became uh, and became donkeys. And that's the symbol of the Democratic Party today, which is kind of weird, um, you know, but all right. Yeah, man, I didn't know that. That's a cool story. And then didn't did Andrew Jackson have like a, a swearing parrot, too? Yes, he had a he had a parrot that was swearing. I think it even swore at his funeral, if I'm remembering oh correctly. Right. You know, like they brought the. I don't know why you bring the parrot to the funeral, but uh, you know, like, well, he misses Andrew as well. He wants to say goodbye to old Hickory, and he does, like, with some colorful language. And it's not reported what the parrot actually said. I would love to know. Um, I'm sure yeah. by today's standards, the curses were probably very mild. Mm-hmm. I doubt it was dropping f bombs, uh, you know, all over the place, but. You know, you're talking a time when, like, saying damn or hell or bastard would have been this, like, giant scandal in, uh, you know, the 1830s or so. I mean, uh, but that's that's pretty funny. I mean, it, it kind of gets – there's an example where an animal, a pet, tells you something very specific about the president because Jackson was known for being very uh, – I mean, uh, very rugged, very uh, frontiersman. Um you know, he wasn't genteel. He wasn't a, a patrician like John Quincy Adams, you know. So having a swearing parrot, you know, like I said with Elizabeth Warren and her, her George Bailey dog, this is totally on brand for Andrew Jackson. I mean, this is right right where he should be. Mm-hmm. When, yeah. you, when you said – I know we talked about it yesterday, but when you said about uh, – it was at the um, – came up with that Sadar who was – Sardar? Sardar, yeah. who was the Kennedy's horse – that was at the White House, mm-hmm. came to Kennedy's funeral. And they I don't they did a, a horse, a riderless horse. I don't know if it was Sardor or not. No, but I don't Sardor was definitely there. And uh just so Sardor was actually another gift from another world leader. I believe it was the president of Pakistan. Um right. Jackie Kennedy had toured uh the Middle East at a certain point and um he gave her this uh, this horse as a gift. And there was some um, some issue as to whether it would get through customs. And she called her husband and was like, this horse, I need this horse now. I don't want it waiting six months for quarantine or whatever. And he had to pull strings. And it actually went to the floor of Congress briefly. Like really? Somebody brought know. up a bill to like condemn the president for rushing this horse <laughs> through customs. And uh, they just quashed that. You know, like, uh, it's kind of like, I right, like, listen, let's, you know, let's not be that petty. Right. Um, so do they have... 
So that horse was actually on the White House grounds? Yes, they did have some horses on the White House grounds, although I, they also owned an estate in northern Virginia, I think outside of Alexandria. I'm not entirely sure the location, yes. but yes. Um, most of their horses were kept permanently outside of uh, outside of D.C. Now, there are, there are pictures of some of the horses on the White House grounds, and obviously the dogs were there, um, but most mostly the horses stayed because Jackie could go riding in northern Virginia. I mean, they had like hundreds of acres so she could ride around there right. uh, without the security issues of, you know, riding your horse through the district, you know? <laughs> yeah. I like the, uh, just to imagine the juxtaposition too of like, you know, the president in the Oval Office and, you know, all these offices and everything going around in the White House, but then there's like, you know, a squirrel running around or there's, there's mice in there <laughs> and stuff. You know, I, I love that. It, that's so hilarious to me. <laughs> well, it is. And and I think one of the interesting things that I didn't I'd never really thought about, but there were various points in our history where the White House was really run down, and you know so yeah you get the mice. I mean now they would have those mice removed right away. I mean there's no, that's not even a question. But there were times uh, when the White House was really in bad shape, and so you know it wasn't that wasn't big there a deal. Fire there? Uh, the British burned it down in uh, 1814, I want to say. But more recently, because. In the museum, we came across a piece, an artifact that is before the White House was remodeled. I thought maybe it doesn't say after the fire. There's a piece of wood from the floor. Um, it's documented, but and yeah. that's actual artifact that we yeah. got from somewhere. I, I don't think there was a. I, I don't maybe. think there was a second fire, but they have remodeled at various points. I mean, Jackie Kennedy did a that big remodel along those lines. Um, you know, she made a big deal um, of going through and finding antique artifacts or things related to the White House that had been there a hundred or 150 years before her and brought them back. And like, that was a minor controversy because she was spending so much money to do this renovation. And then uh, Mary Lincoln before her had done similar things. Uh, and that was a big controversy because that was during the civil war when you're right. raising taxes mm -hmm. and you know, you're trying to figure out how to feed all these hundreds of thousands of troops. And she's going to New York and buying $20,000 worth of drapes. Um, <laughs> It's a, you know, kind of a, an issue for Abraham Lincoln, but, uh, you know, he was, Lincoln's one of those people who probably really benefited from not having 24 hour news coverage <laughs> because I, I love Lincoln. I think he's the best president of all time, but there's a lot of stuff where, oh man, you would get crucified if you did that now. <laughs> I mean, and, and some of it's like war related, like the habeas corpus stuff, like, uh, he had, he had to imprison people so that Maryland didn't secede. But then, yeah, stuff like his wife spending with the drapes or there were, you know, like other kind of weird scandals like that with people in his cabinet. And, um, you know, you just didn't have the news cycle to, you know, really amplify that. And yeah. you get away with it. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So did things ever get, you know, out of hand at the White House? Because like when you go when I go through and look at the site, some presidents had a lot of pets. Um, was there a time, and I think even Calvin Coolidge, you said he, he literally had a zoo, right? He did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty close. And Teddy Roosevelt, um, had more than Coolidge. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, Roosevelt had the most of all the, of all the, um, animals, the economist actually took our website and they made a little bar graph. And then there was like, Teddy Roosevelt was like way out there. Um, and then Coolidge was close and then everybody else is like, you know, four or five. Um, yeah. I would say Teddy Roosevelt's the closest to getting out of hand, just in the sense that, like, he had young kids at the White House as well. Um, there was a point where one of 
Um, you know, they took stairs on the elevator. Um, his daughter uh, used to have a, a green snake named Emily Spinach. It was named after one of her aunts, apparently. <laughs> and she would kind of keep it up her sleeve and like it would come out at like state, state dinners and crawl around on the table and freak people out. Uh, one of the sons, one of the Roosevelt kids had purchased some snakes at a local pet store and came bursting into a cabinet meeting, you know, like carrying these snakes and freaking out all the cabinet members or the, <laughs> the people who were present. Um, I, I would say that's the closest it came. And, and Teddy Roosevelt, in part because Teddy Roosevelt was so indulgent, um, although Lincoln was, you know, Lincoln was also indulgent. And I think the goats that he had, Tad would hook the goats up to like a chair or something and the goats would pull the chair through the like they they were having a banquet one night and like the the goat came barging in pulling this chair with Tad on it and uh, you know Lincoln thought this was all in good fun but of course you know like Andrew Jackson in some ways he was very rugged and front doorsman or front frontiersman not front doorsman jeez a frontiersman he was very rugged and and not very um, prim and proper so that was all cool with him but uh, you know his his Tony Washingtonian guests were not impressed with the goats so did did. Roosevelt had bears at the White House. Wasn't there a story? And the Congress voted to make him put him in the zoo. You're thinking of um, you're thinking of Martin Van Buren and the tigers. Okay. okay. Van Buren was given tiger cubs. Okay, and that's he, right. The tiger he was cub. keeping those in the East Room at the White House until oh, Congress. Congress was more powerful in those days. I mean, now our executive seems to be the most powerful of the three branches. In those days, it was the legislature. And they made him take the tigers to the zoo. They're, you know, because imagine being a you know opposing congressman. You come to you know like, well, uh, sir, let, let me take you to the East Room for a moment. You know, like just go on in there and wait for me. I'll be in. You know, um, hold your arm out. Yeah, hold this raw meat. Um, so, yeah, that that that's one of the stories. Um, Jefferson had some grizzly bears on the White House lawn that, at the time. That's who I was thinking. They were Jefferson. They were uh, sent back, I believe, by the Lewis and Clark expedition, and he kept them caged there for a little while. But people were complaining. Yeah, they it? did eventually. He did eventually move them. Um, I don't know if it was at the behest of Congress or if it was just the. They started off as cubs, I think, and they were getting bi bigger. And grizzlies are pretty pretty large. Um, Jefferson also had an issue uh, that would probably ruin any president today, where. Um, a ram or a sheep on the White House grounds killed a child. Like this child, in those days, you could just like walk through the property. The kid was like trying to just take a shortcut through the White House grounds to get to the other street. And, uh, you know, this ram uh, headbutted him and the kid died. Wow. And I mean, if you can imagine a president being even tangentially responsible for the death of a, of a child mm -hmm. on White House property today, I mean, that would be... That would be the end right there. There's no coming back from that. Yikes. Um, but, you know, that was – I think that tells you something about the, the nature of the times as well. I mean people would have 10 or 12 kids because only so many of them made it to adulthood for one reason or another. And, you know, death was more – especially the death of children was much more part of regular life back then in the early 1800s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so much of what we've done with medicine and, and science is to eliminate that particular thing, like the death of children. And, you know, I think a lot of those animal regulations we were talking about earlier kind of goes along the same lines. You can't have a pet monkey because we don't want your monkey to like eat this child. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it was very different. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where it's fun is you get the old, you know, the older presidents that had these 
they had, you know, tiger cups, crazy stuff that, you know, just wouldn't happen today. So that's what's, that's what I love that you guys are, are sharing that and documenting that stuff. Um, so man, yeah. this was great. So where can we, you guys have the presidential pet That's your official site. There's a bunch of information on there. It's so fun to go look through that. Um, Thank you so much. yeah, that, that's awesome. And then, uh, Andrew, do you, you, you mentioned that you had some kid children's books that you'd written off of these like pet stories. We, Are those available? We've started, uh, yes, we've started a series. It's called POTUS pets. Um, we have two books so far. There's a third one probably coming out later this year. Um, and they're both available on Amazon. One is called Old Ike. It's about Woodrow Wilson's tobacco chewing ram. And the other one is called Pushinka. Uh, both of them are available on Amazon. Um, Old Ike actually is available on Kindle for 99 cents. So, uh, you know, that's a good one to get out there. And if you want to try it out, um, I would say uh, they're probably geared mostly for like fourth through sixth grade, but I've had younger kids like it and I've had adults who like, oh, I really like that. It was interesting. Um, but if you've got a kid who's interested in animals or presidents and they're kind of in that age range, like late elementary school through middle school, that's kind of the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's worth taking a, taking a look at. And um, what I tried to do was when I was a kid, I used to read these books like we were there at the Battle of the Alamo and it would be the Alamo, but through the eyes of children that were, you know, supposedly present. Hmm. And what I've done is kind of the same thing. Like you're seeing a lot of this history, but it's kind of because the dog or the the ram is there. And, you know, it kind of allows you to work your way into some of these ideas and these historical notions, um, you know, with the animal being, uh, you know, kind of our, our audience surrogate, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they sound awesome. I want to read them right now. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) We should send you a copy. Uh, you know. Sure. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, man, well, this, yeah, this is good. Anywhere else we should uh, send people to learn more? Can we visit the museum today? Uh, you can't visit the museum today because we're still looking for that permanent home. Mm-hmm. But we're hoping that'll be soon. And um, let's see, there's presidentialpets.com. Presidential Pet Museum. Presidentialpetmuseum.com. Yes, let me make sure we get that correct. Presidentialpetmuseum.com. <laughs> I don't know what's at presidentialpets.com. Maybe it's awesome, <laughs> but that's not us. Um, do you want to? Do you want to? There's WolfDriver. Yeah, yeah. If they right? want to know anything about what I do on a more personal level, WolfDriver.com. W-O-O-F Driver.com, and that's all about dog adventuring and um, into huskies. And actually, a couple presidents have had huskies. Yeah. Um, well, well, I know Reagan had a husky on his ranch. At least. Yeah, that's that's the one that comes to mind. I know we have a picture of Harding with some huskies because he had traveled Alaska. To, he had traveled to Alaska shortly before his death. He actually died on the like return trip home from that. Um, I know there's at least someone else. I, you know, I've I've looked at these things so many times, but they, you know, the 44 presidents sometimes start to run together if they if there's not a really strong. Um, you know, all pets have personality, but we don't always see that because the clippings might just say like, oh, and his Belgian shepherd, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they don't really give you more information. So sometimes yeah. there are animals like that that kind of fall through the cracks a little bit because the press just didn't report on them as much. Yeah, it's not, not wasn't a big story back then, whatever. But yeah, wolfdriver.com, they can find out more about me. And um, it all ties together through Wolf Driver, Presidential Pet Museum and all that good stuff. Sweet. 
Yes. Perfect. Yes. Well, yeah, I'll have uh, I'll have links to all that stuff so people can check it out. And uh, yeah, definitely encourage everybody to to look into this stuff because it's just a fun part of our our history. And I'm glad you guys are are sharing it. Yeah. Well, thank um, you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having us on to talk about it. It's it feels great to have a conversation with somebody and just sort of you know because when you tell people what you do and you say I'm a historian at the Presidential Pet Museum. They're always like, first of all, they say, is that really a thing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, um, but then they're always interested. So it's nice to kind of have this, this platform to get out there and, and reach, you know, thousands and thousands of people with, with this idea, um, you know, because I'm sure lots of people are curious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I wish you guys the best of luck in, you know, finding a new location and, and continuing to grow this. It's awesome. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thanks yes, so well, much. thanks, guys. Thank you, Bill, Andrew. Have a good one, all right? You too. You too. Great talking to you. <laughs> oh, boy, what an episode. Thanks for sticking around and listening to it. This is Travis again uh, here on my own. But as a thank you for sticking around, I wanted to give you a free sticker, a free Curiosityness sticker, 100% free. Don't have to pay for shipping. You don't have to enter your credit card info. It's really free. Uh, to get one, go to curiosityness.com slash free sticker, and it's yours. I'll send it to you right away, and, and you can slap that baby wherever you want to represent Curiosityness. So uh, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Just wanted to give you guys a little gift. Um, so just go ahead and claim that at curiosityness.com slash free sticker. And uh, visit our website too, curiosityness.com. I have an Instagram, Curiosityness Podcast. I'm on Instagram too as Trav DeRose, me, Travis, the host. You can follow me if you want. Uh, we're on Twitter, Curiosityness TV is our uh, handle there. We're on Facebook as Curiosityness. All the links to this stuff are in the show notes. You can just click on it and follow us if you want to because I post some cool little clips and, and extra stuff that you don't get from the uh, podcast onto social media. So you can join in on that and comment and, and talk about me and the show or whatever you want to do. Uh, we're on YouTube too as Curiosityness. And I have an email address, Travis at Curiosityness.com. Send me an email. Send me your thoughts on the show, suggestions for new guests tips on things to make the show better and, and help me with my interviewing and, and get better and everything like that. So uh, constructive feedback is always nice. So send me an email and uh, also reviews super help. Uh, really appreciate reviews on the show in uh, Stitcher or iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever. Um, just drop a review. That's extremely helpful. You don't even have to make it five stars. You can, you can lower it. Uh, I would prefer a higher one, but whatever, whatever you want to do. I won't coax you into something, uh, but any sort of review helps. I really honestly do appreciate it. So um, yeah, thank you again, guys, for sticking around and listening to this end blabber with me, but uh, have a good rest of the day. Bye-bye.